0: I to 1st Chronicles chapter 20 1st Chronicles chapter 20 and uh, the message tonight is about Long-term consequences long-term consequences that is Something that you may have done some sin you may have committed And you've asked for forgiveness and god has forgiven you and you've moved forward and yet you're still suffering the consequences of that sin And also, um, it may have been caused by an angry outburst, a decision, an action that you made while you were angry. Not a good time to make decisions. But again, we'll see all of that and how it plays in our message tonight and how it speaks to us in our own lives. But let's begin now in chapter 20 with verses 1 through 3. And it says, it happened in the spring of the year at the time kings go out to battle, that Joab led out the armed forces and ravaged the country of the people of Ammon and came and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem, and Joab defeated Rabbah and overthrew it. And then David took their king's crown from his head and found it to weigh a talent of gold, which is about 75 pounds. And there were precious stones in it, and it was set on David's head. Also, he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance, and he brought out the people who were in it, and he put them to work with saws and with iron picks and with axes. So David did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. If you remember last week in chapter 19, I had mentioned that David was a man who was always on the defensive. And as a Christian, we seem to be always on the defenses. Defensive. You know, the is attacking and people are coming at us, and we, we seem to be always be defending ourselves. Well, it looks like here Joab was the aggressor in this case, here in chapter 20. And even though he may have been the aggressor, we have to remember that David had made a friendly gesture to the young king of Ammon, which was Hanan, in return for his father's kindness. But David was insulted, and immediately the new king came against David in war. So this is just a continuation of that war that was started back in chapter 19. Now, there can't be any compromising whatsoever with the enemy. There can't be any compromising with evil whatsoever. And this idea today that right and wrong can get along and that right and wrong can walk together is is all wrong. Amos 3.3, it says, can two walk together? Unless they are agreed. (coughs) Can two walk together? Yes. But not, excuse me. (coughs) Okay, Uh, hopefully. Uh, Can two walk together? Yeah, they can. But you know what? Not unless they're in agreement. Have you ever seen people who are friends? Maybe you've experienced this and, and for a long time. You know, they hang out. They do things together, but then they have a disagreement and they part ways. They're not walking together anymore. Why? Because there's been some kind of disagreement between them. There has to be an agreement if you're going to walk together with God. You will walk with him when you're in agreement. Now, this doesn't mean that God is going to come to you and agree with you you and I are going to have to go to his side, over to his side, and agree with him. God is victorious. And if you want to be victorious, you better get on board with God. God is running his universe, and he's running it his way. And you know what? He's not asking for any man's opinion or advice. Thank you. So, if we're going to walk with God, we'll have to go his way. Now listen, if you're walking with evil... And fellowshipping with evil. And you're getting along with evil. It's because you've compromised with evil. You've agreed with evil. You get along with evil. You've accepted this kind of thinking and attitude. Like the world that right and wrong can walk together. Jesus said in John 15, 18 through 20. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world. But I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. James says in chapter four, verse four, adulterers, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, this verse uh, in James four, four, it doesn't speak about God's attitude toward the believer, but of the believer's attitude toward God. You see, the difference between the world and God is so infinite that the closer we move toward the world, the more we separate ourselves from God, the further we get away from God. In the world, as we know, we look back, sin was no big deal. We didn't even consider it sin. They don't even think of it as sin. Sin is okay. It's accepted. But the bottom line is that the world has lost its awareness of sin. And because it has, Sin has become an everyday acceptable practice and pleasurable to them. This is something that the world is forgetting. And there's a lot of people who are disgusted with lawlessness. That is sin when they see it everywhere else. But they're happy to tolerate it in their own lives. People say we have to learn to understand and to appreciate the lawbreakers. There's a, a mentality, a hypocrisy in a society that's totally perverted and beyond our understanding. Hey, if it's evil and sin on the other side of the world, then it's evil here, too. Evil is evil. It doesn't matter where it's at or where it's being done. Evil has to be opposed and it has to be stopped. Lawless, lawlessness must be opposed and stopped right and wrong. They oppose one another. Right and wrong are and will be at odds with each other forever. They will never be able to walk together in agreement. Light can never fellowship with darkness. And it doesn't matter how hard you try to put them together in the same place. Try it sometime. Try putting light and darkness in the same place. It'll never happen. There can never be an agreement between the two. Paul said in 2 Corinthians six fourteen, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness. Now, Paul in, verse, in this verse was dealing with marriage. But the principle of the unequal yoke goes beyond marriage. You see, it's nature that decides who we're going to associate with. We've all heard the expression, birds of a feather flock together. And because a pig has a pig's nature, it hangs out with other pigs and rolls around in the mud hole with other pigs. And because a sheep has a sheep's nature, it chews on the grass with the other uh, sheep in the flock in the pasture. Now, if right and wrong could walk together and if light could dwell with darkness... If evil could peacefully live together in harmony with righteousness, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die on the cross. So it's during this battle here in chapter 20 that David stayed at Jerusalem. And that's when he ended up committing his great sin with Bathsheba. But did you notice here that God doesn't mention David's terrible sin here? Maybe it's because God has said that he forgives our sins. And that he won't remember them anymore. And that's why he doesn't mention it here in our story. And because of that, there are there are lessons to be learned here. First of all, in our story, how long term consequences that is from one foolish act can can come into our life. Long term consequences can result from one foolish act in our life. Alan Redpath said this, a moment of pleasure could lead to a lifetime of misery. And he's right on. It can take a painfully long time before all the consequences of a single mistake are paid. Hannon and his foolish leaders back in chapter 19 probably felt pretty bummed out after they were so miserably defeated in battle. But you see, they may have made themselves feel better by thinking, you know what? All right. We 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 paid for the stupid thing that we did. So now it's behind us. Let's put it behind us and let's move on. And let's get back to business as usual. And if that's what they thought, they were so wrong. Don't be deceived by that kind of thinking, because we hear from Paul. God is not mocked for what a man sows that he will also reap. And in this chapter, they face more consequences that is handed and his people because of their foolish actions. And the following spring Mentioned here in verse 1, they had to face another army in the battlefield. Now, springtime was the time when kings would go out to battle after the spring harvest. During the spring, there wasn't a lot of, you know, farm work. They weren't as busy during the spring with farm work. So the armies could live off of the land. During the winter, they would plot and plan for their future battles. And then when the weather got better, their armies went to war. But not David here. David ignored this opportunity. David decided to stay home and he sent Joab out to lead the army. And it was during this time of inactivity that is not being where David should have been that he sinned with Bathsheba. It's it's a warning to us that we need to watch out. We need to watch out for those idle times in our life. Those times when God wants you to respond, that is to take the initiative and to move out to do his will. Because it's during these critical times that we may be most susceptible to temptations because that's when we let our guard down. We're taking it easy. We're complacent. You know, everything is going good. And and so I let my guard down. And that's exactly what Satan is looking for. Decide to do what God has called you to do. And don't give into temptation. Don't give temptation an open door to your idleness. Now, Rabbah mentioned here in these verses was the capital of the Ammonites, and it's the site of modern Amman, Jordan today. So many times when we think we've gotten away from the dreaded consequences of our carelessness, of the carelessness of our sin, we find out that we haven't. Here, there they are again, staring us in the face, ready to attack. We need to seriously pray and carefully watch. That we don't fall into sin. That we don't give in to the power of temptation. Second thing we learn from these verses. The evil of dictatorship. This little kingdom of Ammon was probably a dictatorship. Even though Hanan's leaders gave him advice, Hanan had the last word. And what terrible consequences his poor people paid for his foolish decision. The city of Ramah, it says in verse 1, was destroyed. And the people living there, they didn't just lose their property, but they were subjected to cruelty. And verse 3 says, And that's how David dealt with the people of all the Ammonite towns. It's sad when you think of how one man or a few men's thoughtlessness caused thousands of innocent people to suffer a whole lot of misery. You know, sometimes we complain about our government, probably more than sometimes. We complain about our president. But we need to thank God that our government is not a dictatorship and that all the decisions for our nation aren't made by just one person. But have you ever thought of this? Probably not that our flesh is a dictator. Our flesh calls the shots. Paul talked about this in Romans chapter seven, when he said, for what I will to do or what I want to do, I do not practice. But what I hate, that's what I do. He says, for the good that I will I will to do, that's the good the good that I want to do, he says, I don't do it. But the evil I don't want to do, that's what I practice. He says, Now if I do what I will not to do, or I don't want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Paul talked about that struggle in the flesh. And then he said in Galatians 5, 17, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. You see, my flesh, your flesh says, this is what I want. It says, I want my way. And I want it now. And it will do whatever it takes to get its own way. And it doesn't care how it gets it. And it doesn't hurt who it gets to get it james tells us in chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 where do wars and fights come from among you do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members he says you lust and you do not have you murder and covet and cannot obtain you fight and you war the third thing that we learn from these verses verses 1 through 3 is power is dangerous And it would probably be uh, probably be safe to say that Hanan was not a very happy man in the latter years of being king. Why? Because there had to be such an uproar from his people who were being so miserably treated by David. And especially from those who lost loved ones because of Hanan's dumb mistake. And, you know, we, we see people who want power. People want power. But it can be a dangerous thing to have because of just one mistake. We can hurt a lot of people. We can bring a lot of people into suffering and sorrow and we can ruin our own life. Those who have power should earnestly pray that God would keep them from abusing that power and use it for the good of the people and for the glory of God. You know, and, and if you haven't been given a place of power, don't be bummed out. If you're given a position of lesser power. Because you've been spared the serious and, and important responsibilities that would come with that power. And the precious pressures and added responsibility. And you know, when you're trying out for that manager position at work or that supervisor position at work and you're praying and you don't get it. Hey, God knows what's going to what's going to might happen if you get that position. You know, I, I when I was, you know, Working in the secular workplace and, you know, I, I tried out for manager positions a couple of times and didn't get them. And and, and even even before that, you say, oh, man, I'd I sure hate to be a manager. But when it came up, I'd apply for it. But I'd see that what they'd go through and the and the, the pressures and all that and just and yet there I would be. But when I didn't get it, I would just say, OK, Lord, you know better than me. You know, you probably spared me from from some of the heartaches and the problems that I used to see these guys have, you know, as managers. The fourth thing that we learn from these verses is the need to think. This is so important here. The the need to think when you're angry. Man, when you're angry is one of the worst times to to make decisions or take action for something. It's hard to imagine why David did the cruel things he did to the people of Ammon in verse 3. It would have been better if David would have first stopped and taken a deep breath and thought about what he was going to do. And, and asked like he had before in 2 Samuel 24, 17. David said, but these sheep, what have they done? It was Hanan he was angry at. But yet he, he, he subjected the people of Ammon to, to or I'm sorry, Hanan to, to cruelty. Now, yeah, David was insulted and he was humiliated big time. But he let his anger get the best of him. <clears throat> and then he let his emotions do the thinking. And he went too far. You know, in, in what he did to the people. He was a thoughtful man and he was a God fearing man. He should have stopped and he should have sat before God like we saw him do before. When he would sit, before, he went into in the sanctuary and he sat before God. And he allowed God to speak to him. When we get angry, it is not a good time for making decisions. Now, David knew this later on in Psalm 60, uh, Psalm 6, 1 and 2. He said, oh, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger nor chasing me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me. He knew, Lord, I, when, when you're mad and angry, don't 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 chase me when you're, you're, you're an, an angry or, or you're you, you know, you're you're hot displeasure. Cool down and, and then deal with me. That's what we need to do. We need to stop and think before we open our mouths or or act. Because we're in a dangerous position of saying something or doing something really hurtful and irreversible. Doing irreparable damage. Isaiah 28, 16 says, whoever believes will not act hastily. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. James 1, 19 and 20. So then, my beloved brethren, notice, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James said it very well right here. Notice the sequence. He says, be quick to hear. Hear, Listen first, he said. And be slow to say anything. And be slow to get angry. Now, if you would listen first, you would probably follow the sequence that follows. I'll be slow to speak. And it'll, and it'll I'll be slow to get angry. And then he tells you why, because the wrath of man, when you're angry, it, when you're angry, it doesn't produce the righteousness of God. I mean, when we're angry and we just let it rip. Do we look very righteous? We're a bad witness and testimony. Because we've let our flesh dictate to us what we're going to say and what we're going to do. And we blow our witness. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness, righteousness of God. James here is talking about anger that explodes when our pride is hurt or we're embarrassed. When wrong and sin happens, we should become angry because others are being hurt now. Psalm 37, verse 8 says, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret because it only causes harm. Now, anger and rage and losing our temper are very powerful and destructive emotions. But notice Psalm 37 says cease from stop from anger and forsake wrath. That's a command. God's word commands you and me to to put away anger. So you know what that means? It's possible to do so. God's commands are his enablements. If he commands me to do it, that means I can do it. Our out of control emotions show a lack of faith that God loves us and that God's in control. We shouldn't worry. Instead, we should trust in God, giving ourselves to him for his use And and to take care of us. Listen to, again, Paul said in Philippians 4, 8 through 9. When you you just sit and think about your problems, you're going to get anxious. And you're going to get angry. Paul says, but if you fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable, that are excellent and worthy of praise. He says, and you keep putting into practice all that you've learned and received from me. Everything you heard from me and saw in me doing, he says, then the God of peace will be with you. You see, even the the word of God tells us what things to think upon. Paul said, think about these things that are honorable and good and and praiseworthy. Instead of thinking upon what that person may have said or done. But we shouldn't get angry when we don't win an argument or when we feel offended or neglected. Self-centered anger never Helps anyone. 2 Timothy 2.24 tells us, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, notice, but be gentle to all. Gentle to all. Proverbs 14.29, He who is slow to wrath, that is, he who is slow to get angry, has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts foolishness. A nasty and quick temper can be like a fire that's burning out of control. It'll destroy everything in its path. Anger hurts and divides people. And it forces us to make impulsive decisions that only cause bitterness and guilt. Yet anger in itself isn't wrong. Anger in itself isn't wrong. Anger can be a right, a right reaction to wrong and sin. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, Paul said, be angry. So we, we, it's, you know, we can get angry. It just has to be over the right thing. But he says, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath nor give place to the devil. In other words, you know, if you get angry, all right. But he says, don't stay angry. Don't let the sun go down. Don't go to bed angry. Because he says, you give a place to the devil. When you feel yourself getting angry, look for for the reason that you're getting angry. And ask yourself, why am I getting angry? Remember when Cain rejected... Or God rejected uh, Cain's sacrifice. Cain got really angry. It says Cain was very angry. And it says his countenance, his whole expression fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? See, he was asking, Cain, hey, check yourself. Why are you so angry? Why has it changed your whole uh, facial expression? See, are you reacting to an evil situation that you're going to make right? Or are you responding selfishly to a personal insult? Now, a lot of you say, well, Jesus got angry. Yeah, he did. But when Jesus got angry, it was never because somebody did something wrong to him. He never took it personal. It was always some wrong done by man to his fellow man. So pray that God will help you control a quick temper and that he'll turn your feelings into a useful action and you can conquer your selfish anger through humility and repentance. Galatians 5, 22 through 23 tells us the fruit of the spirit is peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. It's a fruit of the spirit. Self-control. Proverbs 25, 28 says though so whoever has no rule over his own spirit, that is whoever has no self-control over his own spirit, is like a city broken down and without walls. Now, even though a city's walls restricted the people from, you know, movement inside the city, they were happy to have those walls. Because you see, without those walls, they wouldn't they would have been open to any attack by any passing group of prowlers. Self-control limits us, but for sure it's necessary because an out-of-control life is open to all kinds of attacks by the enemy. The enemy knows exactly what buttons to push. Think of self-control as a wall for defense and protection. And the fifth thing that we learn from verses 1 and 3 is the best crown to desire and to wear. Notice in verse 2, David seems to have put a lot of value on the crown that was taken from the king of Ammon, and he put it on his head. But you know what? There's a much better crown that we need to look for and to wear that is God's favor, God's righteousness, his grateful love, the crown of glory. Because you see, these crowns aren't dirtied by adversities and they're beauty for our souls. And you know what? God's crown of favor, it never gets old. Let's look at verses 4 through 8 now. And now it happened afterward that war broke out at Gezer with the Philistines, at which time Sebekai, the Hushathite, killed Sepai, who was one of the sons of the giant, and they were subdued. Again, there was war with the Philistines, and Elhanan, the son of Jair, killed Lamai, the, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again, there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature with 24 fingers and toes, six on each hand and six on each foot. And he was he was also born to the giant. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shamiah, David's brother, killed him. These were born to the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Now, to us, these giants may not mean anything to us just some oddity that we find in the Bible. Their physical abnormalities don't really impress us that much. We really don't care about them or even remember their names or the things that they did. But they probably thought a lot about themselves. And they thought they were a big deal because of their size and their physique and the way they look. They thought they were a big deal to their friends and associates. But now they've become totally nobodies. Now, that shows us something. First of all, looks and size aren't worth much. A big, strong man is pretty noticeable among his fellow man. And many see this as a desirable thing. Especially if you're a little man. (laughs) You know, and great strength has its advantages, especially on those occasions when you might be involved in a fight. Now, when Israel was looking for a king, Kish, Saul's father, had a choice, the Bible says, had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. It says there was not a man more handsome, there was not a more handsome person than, uh, uh, than, uh, than among the children of Israel. It said from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. But you see, these visible standout features like looks and size, they have their advantages, but you know what? They don't last forever. And a lot of people are drawn to other people based on their physical looks, their outward appearance. And yet they don't know anything about their soul. Sooner or later, that strength, their body and their looks withers and it loses that distinction. And how quickly they're forgotten. Now, in this war with the Philistines, these giants were defeated, verse four says. Their size and their strength and their greatness didn't help them in the fight. It didn't help them when they needed it. And, and this is kind of a reminder to us <clears throat> that when the giants in our life come against us, some trial that appears to be so big that we, we don't think it's good, we can do anything about it, we're not to fear those giants in our life. Because God is, is our, our, our weapon, and he fights our battles. And we need to remember that. Now, Lamai's giant spear in verse 5 didn't save him from Elhanan's skill. Neither did did the great height and physique of the giant with his 24 fingers and toes save him from the courage and the capability of Jonathan in verses 6 through 7. And in verse 8, they says they fell by the hand of David and his servants. These giants fell by David and his servants. Simple size of body. Simple muscular power, simple skill of fighting, and even good looks or charming character. Notice, none of these things were outmatched by something stronger. That was the Lord. Those things soon faded and passed away when when time passed by, and you know what? They're soon forgotten. And we can hardly recognize any of these names, or if we do remember them, we might... Think of somebody else who had a name like that or were known by, you know, other and more important characteristics. So the point is, in closing, is the next generation is not going to care very much for those who have nothing better to be remembered by than their physical appearance, their strength, their looks or some other bodily difference. But on the other hand. To be remembered based on spiritual worth. That's what we should want to be remembered because we were spiritual men and women and we left a spiritual footprint in their life. Having the mind of Christ and being devoted to doing good works, that enjoys a a more lasting honor and it results in a lot greater good. Secondly, spiritual worth is the most valuable thing that we could achieve while we're here. That's the greatness of man, their spiritual worth. Because it puts them on a higher level in this life. It also results in higher and more genuine and valuable service because we're doing it for God and not for the flesh. And third, it produces a, a grateful remembrance. Proverbs 10, 7 says, The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. We have good and happy memories of the godly. And fourth, spiritual worth continues to live on generation after generation, having an influence, a fruitful influence. Proverbs twelve two says, a good man obtains favor from the Lord. I'm not waiting to be favored and remembered by men, but by God. Proverbs 25, 7 says, Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me. Remember one of the thieves on the cross said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for... The instructions here, God. From this lesson. And Lord, may we receive them. May we take them to heart, God. May we apply them to our life, Lord. God, might we remember. To be spiritual men and women, Lord. Lord, help us with our. god with our, our our dispositions lord if we have anger problems god we can't allow them to to lead our lives god we can't allow them to dictate to us god how we speak and how we behave for lord we are we are to be like our lord and savior We're to demonstrate his gentleness and his kindness and his patience. And Father, help us to do that. Help us to lean upon you, Lord, and not our flesh. Help us us to call upon the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Who leads us and guides us, God. He's the one who gives us complete control over our lives and so many people's lives are out of control today and they have no idea on how to to reel in their out of control life if you're here this evening and you've never received Christ as your lord and savior and your life seems to be out of control Christ is the one Who can bring. Control to your life. Standards and principles. The worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship. And if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. You want to receive forgiveness of your sins. And the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. As a result. Then as we worship you get up out of your seat. You make your way down the aisle towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.